life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. And uh, our task there is to separate nonsense and to make sure you're up to date on what's in the world of science. Uh, we separate sense from nonsense and foster critical thinking. And, of course, I chat with you here every Sunday afternoon from uh, 3 to 4. What a show we have coming up today. I have two special guests in studio. Uh, first, we'll speak to Annabelle Sotar, who's the director of a play that some of you may have seen when it was at the center called Seeds. And it's coming back, and we're going to discuss uh, the nature of that play, and we will also invite you to a special performance on February 29th. March is Nutrition Month, and we have uh, dietitian Patricia Urico with us here from the Jewish General. We're going to talk nutrition, difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian, uh, and uh, we'll uh, see where that takes us, because one, of course, can talk nutrition uh, ad infinitum. Okay, but before we get to all of that, little story. Back in 2005, Joe Dorgan, a dairy farmer in Prince Edward Island, made an interesting discovery. His farm was located on the coast, and some of his cows, located in paddocks along the shore, were grazing on seaweed that had been washed up. Well, Dorgan noted that these cows were healthier and produced more milk than those raised inland. Subsequent research showed that some types of seaweed inhibit the production of methane in the cow's digestive tract. All right, why am I talking about this? Because, of course, I did ask a question this morning on the trivia show about why researchers are interested in feeding cows seaweed. Well, cows normally eat a mixture of food that includes grass, silage, hay, and grains. They have molars, but they don't have upper front teeth. If you don't know that, Take a look at a cow. So they cannot chew the food properly. However, they are ruminants, meaning they have the ability to bring food up from their stomach for a second chew. During digestion, methanogenic bacteria that are normally present in the animal's gut break down the cellulosic components of food and in the process generate methane gas. This is largely belched out, not like the cartoonists would like you believe. Uh, no, the cows uh, don't release this to their rear end. It's not flatulation. But anyway, some of these bacteria are also present in the manure that they do release to their rear end, where these bacteria will react with undigested food in the manure and yield more methane that is then outgassed into the air. Now, there are two problems here. Methane is a greenhouse gas that contributes to climate change. And yes, climate change is real, despite what Trump says. And the loss of methane also means a loss of cattle can be used for milk production. There are an estimated 1.3 to 1.5 billion cows roaming the planet. So their contribution to the greenhouse effect, that is, trapped from air by atmospheric gases, is not insignificant. While the amount of methane in the atmosphere is far less than carbon dioxide, which is, of course, the major greenhouse gas, methane is more potent, allowing less heat to escape into space. Cows, of course, are not the only source of methane in the atmosphere. Termites produce the gas, as do bacteria present in rice paddies, waterlogged soils, landfills, and sewage treatment centers. Fracking operations, oil drilling sites, all 
produce methane as well. And estimates are that cattle account for about 25% of all methane emissions in North America, but that still amounts to only about 5% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Nevertheless, reduction in methane produced by livestock is desirable. Researchers have found that bromoform, naturally present in a red seaweed called Aspergopsis armata, inhibits the enzymes that form methane, and that a diet containing about 1% seaweed can reduce a cow's methane emission by two-thirds. Gathering seaweed in the wild cannot yield enough, so thought is being given to developing ways to farm this seaweed, but whether it is possible is not yet clear. Of course, the other way to cut back on methane produced by cows is to cut back on eating animals. We'll talk about that in the second part of of the show. But uh, right now, let me introduce you to Annabelle Sutar. Annabelle was with us, uh, when was it, two years ago? Uh, even longer when she she uh, put together and directed a show called Seeds, which was performed at Centaur uh, to wide acclaim and then was taken across Canada. Uh, it is a show about genetic modification and the story of Percy Schmeiser, the Saskatchewan farmer who was uh, taken to task by Monsanto uh, because uh, Monsanto claimed that he had essentially stolen uh, their seed. And uh, Percy claims that that was not the case, that these seeds had just fallen off a truck, right? And remarkably planted themselves in perfect rows on his land, and he had nothing to do with this. So, Annabelle, why is the show coming back, and what are the, the plans of going further other than Montreal? Sure, and just one little modification to what you said. I'm not the director of the play, Joe. I wrote the play. It's directed by Chris Abraham and performed by uh, seven actors, including, uh, yeah, including Eric Peterson, yes. who plays the farmer. So uh, this play was created uh, around 2012, and we toured it at that time. We brought it to the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. It's been all across Canada, most recently in Halifax. Uh, and we've recently been invited to bring it down to the United States. We have four presenters in the Midwest, uh, Kansas and Iowa, and two presenters in California who are interested in putting on the play. So we've uh, assembled the cast uh, in Montreal to rehearse and get ready to do that tour. And we decided uh, we should put it up for one night in Montreal since it's been, uh, gosh, about eight years since we put it on for a Montreal audience. And it did very well at the Centaur. We thought we'd bring it back for one Yeah, and of course I saw it, uh, obviously, since I do have an interest in genetic modification. And uh, it was a great play because it it doesn't really take sides. It just presents what the story is. Yeah, And uh, it is very true, I think, to what actually... uh, happened. And uh, I think uh, it is appropriate to bring it back because uh, there's still a great deal of discussion about genetic modification. Yes. And of course, uh, genetic modification has a great future because it Mm -hmm. can do all kinds of things. And uh, the play is on February 29th. Yeah, leap day, so it's uh, easy to remember. And it's pretty much the same version that uh, people might have seen at the Centaur. I always update the epilogue uh, to sort of uh, bring people into the news of today. And as you were saying, there's still a lot of debate about Monsanto, which is, of course, bought by Bayer now, and their technology, uh, most, mostly to do with uh, the uh, herbicide Roundup. Uh, there have been a lot of court cases recently suggesting that there's a direct link between uh, cancer and the use of Roundup. Uh, and some people who handle the, the herbicide have been successful 
in uh, making claims against Monsanto. Yeah, we will talk about that. But uh, let's first inform the people that if they do want to see the show and they have one chance to see this in Montreal <laughs> before it goes on national tour in the U.S. And that's at the Théâtre Rouge. And um, how do they get uh, tickets to this? Uh, so the easiest way is to phone the box office. I think you have the phone number yes, there. It, so uh, get a paper and pencil, and I will give you the number. But I'll give you a second to round up that paper and pencil. People can also go to the Port Parole website, which is uh, portparole.org, and look under Seeds. There's information there. And there is an online box office at the Théâtre Rouge that's just a very complicated website link, which but we you won't can, say But you can radio. Google Théâtre Rouge, and you'll find it. Exactly. All right. Uh, people have run to get their paper, so they should have it by now. So here's the number. It is 514-873-4031, extension 313. 514-873-4031-313. And not only are they going to see a great play, but after the play, we will have a discussion. And you will be there. I'll be there. Yes. And who else we're going to have on that uh, panel? Eric Peterson, the actor who plays Percy Schmeiser, is going to join us on the panel. So that if people have questions about the science of genetically modified food, they can direct those to you and to me to a certain extent because I did a lot of research for the play. And if they want to ask questions about the play and the experience of touring the play across Canada and our hopes and aspirations about going to the United States, they can Yeah, how often you get a chance to speak to an actor, exactly. right? To, to exactly. Play such well, and Eric a, had a very interesting experience performing the role because a number of Percy's family came to see the show. And so when you're when you're portraying a real person and then you perform it for their family, they're going to have some ideas about your performance. So he has some pretty experience, interesting experiences to relate. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And of course, as you said, there's some emerging science about this that I, I, I want to uh, take a few minutes to talk to you uh, about. But we do have to take a, a break and check on, on traffic. But let me remind you again, uh, the play is Seeds. It's at the Théâtre Rouge. The phone number is 514-873-4031, extension 313. Or you can go to portparole.org. That's P-O-R-T-E. P-A-R-O-L-E dot org, and you can get information. Or you can go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS, because we are partly sponsoring the play. All right, you're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a look at uh, traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We're chatting with Annabelle Sutar, who wrote the play Seeds, which is going to be performed in Montreal on February 29th, before its tour of uh, the United States. Uh, Annabelle is in studio, and she has just run here from NDG, which is very impressive. <laughs> which I is... have to get my exercise in, <laughs> since I couldn't make it to the ski hill today. <laughs> run over the mountain, in the snow, <laughs> right. Okay. So, uh, what made you write the play in the first place? Mm. Well, it was about uh, 2002. It came on my radar. I started to read in the national press that the Supreme Court of Canada had accepted Percy's um, appeal against Monsanto. Monsanto won the original suit in which they sued Percy for patent infringement in Saskatoon, the federal court suit. Uh, it went to appeal, lost at the Court of Appeal, and then he 
apply to get an appeal at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court accepted it. And that was big news, because the idea that somebody was contesting Monsanto's patent, which is used worldwide, it was the first time a Supreme Court anywhere in the world accepted uh, an appeal against Monsanto. And everybody started to talk about the fact that Percy had a chance to maybe... um, to, to maybe uh, stop their the way that they applied their patent, their their basically their legal defense of the patent. So I I said to myself, this is no longer just a local uh, Sask- uh, Saskatchewan story. This isn't just a Canadian story. This is a global story, and I really was uh, very attracted to the fact that this was a farmer versus a big biotech company, that it was a play. If I started researching it and doing interviews with people, the characters would be very diverse. We would have lawyers, we would have microbiology professors, we would have farmers. I really like to put diverse people from different walks of life on the stage. And I also thought that the conflict was fascinating. You know, Monsanto was saying that this guy basically took the seed and planted it. Percy said that the seeds blew in with the wind and I kind of wanted to investigate like who was telling the truth because it seemed especially when I picked up the federal court the the transcript of the federal court trial that somebody had to be lying. So it became a kind of a whodunit investigation for me, but also a way to ask some wider social questions about genetically modified food and agriculture and the way it was changing. Just for the one or two people out there who may not be familiar with what genetic modification is, let me just quickly uh, update them. Uh, Monsanto, of course, is one of the prime players in this, although now the company has been purchased by Bayer. Uh, They're probably not too happy about that purchase because of the lawsuits that we'll talk about in in, in a moment. Uh, But um, the, the basic idea is to have seeds that will blossom into plants that can resist being sprayed by a herbicide. That herbicide is glyphosate or or Roundup. It will then kill the weeds, but it will not kill the plant. So obviously it is to the advantage of the farmer because it's a relatively easy way to control weeds. You don't have to pick them out by hand. You don't have to have complicated machinery. Uh, The plants themselves are resistant, so you can just spray your field. Uh, Now this has resulted in all kinds of controversies, uh, some political, some sociological, some economic economic and some, of course, scientific. Uh, The scientific controversy is that uh, uh, the plants that grow from these seeds are somehow different from, uh, quote, natural plants, and they may harbor proteins that that are harmful. I think that has been essentially dispelled. Uh, Then there are the, the issues that farmers over the years have been accustomed to just taking their seeds and planting it. And in this case, uh, of course, the company would sell the seeds and they would not want the farmer to keep some of those seeds from this year's plants and plant it next year without getting some royalties, which is, of course, understandable because this is a technology that makes um, for uh, economic windfall for the farmer. They should expect to pay something for having this technology. So this this controversy was uh, over Percy Schmeiser claiming that he had uh, not illegally planted these seeds, and that's what made uh, the story interesting. Now, the, the more recent um, events uh, that many of you have heard about have been the lawsuits, mm-hmm. uh, one in California, which originally was uh, settled for, what was it, $73 million or something that the, the judge then rolled back to to less, but still many millions, and uh, this was that suit was uh, filed by a, a former, basically lawnkeeper for a, a school district, uh, who said that he had been spraying with uh, Roundup for years, and this is what causes non-Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. Uh, 
he even admitted that he had not taken proper precautions. Uh, you know, when he was spraying, he was wearing no protective equipment. Mm -hmm. And the story was that, you know, he hadn't been properly informed that Monsanto hadn't given the right directives and all of that. Very complicated uh, issue. But anyway, the court uh, found for him. And this uh, opened the gates to many other lawsuits, which are still uh, in the works. Mm -hmm. Now, there is some very, very uh, modest information that farmers who ha have been exposed to large amounts of, uh, of Roundup uh, may have a higher incidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's contested by, by many scientists, but this is really the basis of the um, of these lawsuits, and I guess you've you've yeah. updated the play too a little bit. Yeah, I will be uh, changing the epilogue just to address that. Um, I th I think, as you said. It's more or less accepted now that the science of genetic modification is safe. So a canola, you know, uh, seed or gene that's been modified that then grows into a plant and is crushed for oil is is not causing any health problems. That's I think the overwhelmingly that's what science scientists are saying. And certainly that was the the original question in when I first wrote the play. I think that question now has evolved significantly and now most of the attention is on the industrial use of Roundup. It it should be noted though is when they first started to market Roundup as a product they they used a, an expression was it was so benign it was almost safe enough to drink. I, so I think that we can look at some of the maybe exaggeration yeah, about was, how safe that was it was. Just a, a silly thing to say. <laughs> right. It was. Yeah. It was. And you know you can maybe just say they did that for marketing purposes. But they, it was promoted as something that relative to other uh, chemicals that have been used for pest control or weed control in the past that it was very benign and that, and therefore we could spray it in industrial quantities right. and not see any. And of course you know they, they were all the as saying that that uh, it's less toxic than aspirin, it's less toxic than salt, and all of that, mm -hmm. which really irrelevant because nobody thinks that you know you're going to drop dead tomorrow uh, from being exposed to to Roundup. It's right. not the acute toxicity; mm -hmm. it's the concern of chronic toxicity of being exposed to, exactly. to to decades. But also, you know what the the the, the settlements in the lawsuits have spawned are other lawsuits based on trace amounts of, of glyphosate being found in our food supply. Correct. And this has no relevance to, to the original lawsuits. You know, we're, we're talking about totally different amounts. There's mm -hmm. absolutely no evidence that the trace amounts that may show up in food, and one expects that they may show up because, you know, our analytical chemistry today is so sophisticated, we can find things down to parts per trillion. Yes. So, of course, you yes. can find that. Uh, but, uh, you know, people have sort of uh, adopted the notion that uh, based on on these lawsuits where people were exposed to huge amounts without any protective equipment, mm -hmm. that therefore uh, this also proves that, that the trace amounts in food are a danger and that right. this is a non sequitur. Right. So what do you think, like just ask you a question in terms of how the courts are dealing with this, why do you think that these these suits have suddenly been successful? Is, is, these are being argued in front of juries, if yes, I, I understand? Uh, yes, I, I think it is because emotion trumps science. Mm -hmm. And you take 12 nobodies off the street who know nothing about science and put them in a jury box and ask them to decide on sophisticated scientific concepts. Yes. This is what happens. Right. But there, being, there are two sets of lawyers in the courtroom. One is for and one is against. So why is the side, do you think, that is that is now being successful in showing that this is that there is a health risk here why do you think they're being more successful i wonder are they just vulgarizing the science better they're using uh, more yeah, emotion well, I, I think it's the emotion I, yeah. I think it's the emotion 
And, of course, there, as is always the case, there's a kernel of truth. The kernel right. of truth in this case is that large exposures to glyphosate may have a link to, to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right. That's, right. that's possible. Yes. You know, but that has nothing to do, as I said, with the trace amounts in, in food. Yes. Anyway, let me just mention once more uh, the, the play. Uh, performance in Montreal, February 29th at Théâtre Rouge. 514-873-4031 is the phone number, extension 313. Or you can go to the website, portparole.org, P-O-R-T-E-P-A-R-O-L-E.org. Or you can go to our website. And, of course, you should be going to our website all the time anyway. And you can go and sign up for a weekly newsletter. And the weekly newsletter will also have the information about uh, the show. And Annabelle will be there. I will be there. We'll take questions from the audience after. The lead actor in the play will be there. And uh, we're going to have a good time. Of course, our website is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. We're going to take a break for the news. Thanks, Annabelle, for coming in. Thanks for inviting me, And we'll have a good time at the show, hopefully, and uh, elucidate some of these ideas about genetic modification. Looking forward to it. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are switching topics a little bit, although not totally, because, of course, we were talking about genetic modification, which is related to food. But uh, right now, we're going to talk about uh, nutritionists and dietitians. And uh, my guest in studio is Patricia Urico, who's a dietitian at the Jews General. And she's here because March is Nutrition Month, and uh, the hospital is going all out to acquaint people with what dietitians do. And in fact, on March 4th, uh, I'll be there speaking at noon uh, about food, and you'll have a chance to ask nutritionists and dietitians questions. Uh, and uh, you'll also be uh, apprised of what else is going to go on during uh, that month. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Thank you. A real honor to be here talking to the show. And uh, I said nutritionists and dietitians. What is the so, difference? Uh, in Quebec, there is no difference. The title um, dietitian nutritionist is a protected title in Quebec and in Alberta and Nova Scotia, from what I uh, understand. So a person who calls themselves a dietitian or a nutritionist needs to have the educational background, a Bachelor in Nutritional Science uh, from an accredited uh, university, uh, has been through a rigorous program, including internship. So those are that's a protected title. There are many people who have blogs, you know, these self-professed experts who just call themselves nutritionists, and no one takes them, you know, to court. Being well, actually, in Quebec, we can pursue them. You can. Our, you an can actual, but are they pursued? Our uh, our order, yeah. our uh, the dietitians professionnels du Québec has been actually quite busy in the pursuit of themselves um, nutritionists who are selling sort of miracle diets. Um, and so we know that the diet industry is a billion-dollar industry, and people um, who are seeking advice should um, look at the credentials, should look at the background, ask questions, and uh, same principle when buying a book on nutrition. 
So uh, it's a it's a big industry, and uh, you just need to uh, ensure that you're getting uh, sound, reliable advice. Because the nutritionists here in Quebec need, are uh, responsible for providing reliable advice based on evidence. You know, when you walk through a bookstore and you walk down the the science <laughs> and the food aisle, the reputable books uh, are few and far between. You know, you'll have books by the food babe, you know, one of my favorite targets. Yes, I know. And and <laughs> and numerous others of the same ilk who are peddling their their simple solutions to complex problems. That's what they do. And everyone has an answer, you know, whether, whether it's not, uh, whether it's the keto diet or, you know, some crazy diet like, you know, the, the grapefruit uh, diet. I mean, yes. over the years, I mean, we've seen we've... Ev- every kind of diet. Indeed. And of course, they come and they go because none of them are, are sustainable. No. So so tell me, what, what does a hospital dietitian do? So a hospital dietitian, uh, uh, first of all, we have several dietitians at the Jewish General Hospital, and uh, some of us are involved in what we call primary prevention, which is um, the prevention of chronic disease. I was, uh, for many years, uh, working in the Cardiovascular Prevention Center and in uh, obstetrics. I now work in nephrology, where we advise um, people who have, say, high blood pressure, which is a chronic disease, and and we unlock the uh, potential of foods and nutrients in order to prevent disease and, for instance, prevent strokes um, and strokes and cardiovascular disease that is related to high blood pressure. So certain nutrients, for instance, sodium. So we look at the person's um, usual intake, we assess, and we will... provide advice based on uh, the evidence. So that's one area in prevention. However, uh, we have uh, most of our dietitians are involved in acute care. So we have dietitians working in critical care, uh, uh, working in, um, say, uh, people who are admitted with fractures. So we look at certain nutrients that can help. Uh, we're seeing more and more mal uh, malnutrition. The evidence is showing that one in two persons who are admitted to a hospital is malnourished. So we think of mal malnutrition as um, the stereotypical person who, who is um, frail and the elderly. There's no doubt they are a vulnerable population. However, we're seeing malnutrition in um, the obese and in healthy-looking people, uh, people who are uh, who are, have to undergo a surgery, um, hip replacement, knee replacement, or people who say are uh, diagnosed with a serious illness who have um, who are obese, the if they are and become malnourished, they can become malnourished very quickly because of say a history of uh, poor eating habits, for instance. And if they're not obtaining their nutrition nutritional needs, uh, we see the atrophy, and we think that um, and the evidence is showing that wound healing um, is is impacted. There is poor wound healing. They can fight. They're not able to fight infections if they were uh, well-nourished. So we have a whole system in place now at the Jewish General that we are very proud of, where we have dietetic technicians who screen all patients that are admitted, and they flag these uh, persons who are malnourished uh, that are at risk of mal- malnutrition to the nutritionist uh, of the hospital who then will diagnose malnutrition. And we have a whole system of place where we monitor um, and we ensure that they 
obtain the follow-up necessary in the community. So we follow them in the trajectory of care. So, and we hope to to impact um, healthcare costs. The um, the evidence uh, it's a global malnutrition is a global problem. It is costing. Um, Healthcare. Of course, there are, there are some very specific uh, conditions that are nutrition-related, like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease. And Indeed. I'm sure you, you deal with this a lot because uh, these seem to be more prevalent uh, now. And uh, these are difficult conditions to deal with because food, of course, is so complex. I mean, a simple meal will contain <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of different compounds. And we're putting those compounds into the most complex machine on the face of the earth, which is the human body. Yes. And you can't come up with a simple, simple Indeed. solution. But uh, And also, uh, of course, what is interesting is that something that works for one person doesn't work for another one. Mm-hmm. So someone will have IBS and they will, through experiments, have found that they stay away from certain foods and not others. But the same person, another person with the same symptoms, will find that that those foods are okay with them. It's it's very much a uh, individual uh, per individual talk. This is why the the nutritionist will assess their individual intolerances and will uh, be able to assess and and uh, adapt it to what they need. Um, it is uh, nutrients have to be. Uh, you need a, the right balance. You know, too much, say, of calcium is is not will can cause problems, but too little. So you need the right balance, and depending on your um, life, where you are in your uh, <clears throat> in your life, um, or your age, your activity level, your habits, uh, we we factor that in. And unfortunately, you know, there are so many quacks out there <laughs> who will say, well, they have this saliva test, which which can tell you what you mm-hmm. should be eating and what you shouldn't be eating. Or you do a blood profile and find out what your blood type is, and that will determine what you should and should not be eating. And uh, they sound very seductive. They're they do, very indeed. good at what they do. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough job to try to get around it. Anyway, we've got to take a break. We'll check traffic, and we'll be right back with uh, dietitian Patricia Urico, and we'll talk some more nutrition. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We're back. Uh, We're back with uh, Patricia Urico, who's a dietitian at the uh, Jewish General Hospital. And March is uh, Nutrition Month. What does that mean? So at the Jewish General Hospital, uh, we have planned a whole slew of uh, nutrition-related activities. The kickoff will be on March 4th, uh, where Dr. Joe will be presenting uh, at 12 o'clock at the Care for Leah Polanski, which is located in the uh, new cafeteria in um, Pavilion K. And for the following Wednesdays, uh, March 11th, 18th, and 25th, we will have dietitians from the Jewish Channel who will uh, be presenting on various nutrition-related topics from 12 to 1 in A139, which is the Nurses' Lecture Hall, and you, which you can access from the um, uh, Cotonège entrance. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleague, Sandra Sherman, who has spearheaded um, these activities, and we're really looking forward to um, we were- uh, a month full of fun. And uh, we have lunch 
uh, providing we're providing lunch on the fourth, door prizes, uh, and lots of uh, pamphlets and dietitians, uh, nutrition experts whom you can rely on to give you sound advice on anything you so want. So I suspect that lunch is not going to be hot dogs and sugar sweetened soft drinks. I No, I don't <laughs> think so. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we were chatting before uh, about the complexity of the human body and, of course, the complexity of the diet and how uh, information changes as new research evolves. And we're talking about inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and colitis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I, I'm seeing now, interestingly, more and more, is the notion that these are caused by fungi, overgrowth mm. of fungi in the digestive tract. And, you know, it's, it's one of these concepts that at first was poo-pooed. Very much like when, you, well, you probably remember this when Barry Marshall first suggested that ulcers were caused by uh, Helicobacter pylori mm. bacteria. Scientific community said, no, this nonsense. We know that mm -hmm. ulcers are caused by spicy foods and stress, etc. And then, of course, in a foolhardy way, by swallowing some bacteria, he proved his, his point. And now we're seeing the emergence of a, a similar thing uh, where research is showing that, that certain fungi are, are linked to Crohn's disease and that treating the disease with various antifungal drugs works. Mm -hmm total new thing that, you know, I, I mean, certainly I hadn't seen this this before. And the fact is that science evolves. Indeed and, it does. And, uh, you know, the things that we were saying years ago are not the same as what we are saying uh, today. So let me ask you this question, because I, I like to ask this to my guests who are experts in a certain field and, and who've been in the field for a while. What have you done in your own life <laughs> since you started practicing diet as a, as a dietitian? Because information has evolved. So have you incorporated that into your own diet? Well, I try to uh, walk the talk. As uh, I, I, I try as to uh, practice what I preach. And um, I mean, as far as incorporating, are you asking, new uh, Well, new I science? mean, yeah. I mean, today the trend is more towards a plant-based diet. So I, I've always had a plant-based diet. Uh, I do believe in the Mediterranean uh, diet. And uh, so there is a little bit of meat uh, or fish, but not much. I do have, I do consume more plant-based. Well, I guess your background, Italian, yes, right? In the, yes, pasta -based. I... <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, carbs are not bad for you yeah. uh, as long as they're whole grains. Um, so definitely a, a plant-based uh, with adequate protein, because as one ages, you do need adequate protein. So a variety of protein, including meat, uh, fish, definitely fish for those omega-3s and um, the whole grains and legumes that have uh, various type of proteins. The meat issue, of course, is, is getting to be more controversial by the day. And we have all of the new plant-based proteins, the the uh, yes. uh, Impossible Burger and, and the... the uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you tasted any of these? I, I have. And, uh, oh, you're talking about Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat. I like okay. it. Well, <laughs> it's I actually tasted it. I have to say it does have that mouthfeel. Uh, I think the food industry is uh, is evolving. And in one day, it will have an, an adequate product. I'm not impressed with the sodium content. It, the sodium it's quite, content is high. It's quite yeah. uh, rich in salt yeah. and fat. And so, I mean, it's another food that you want to be having in moderation. Um, not to be having it on a daily basis because it's not 
a healthy yeah. no. option. You and know? To, to their credit, they're not actually promoting it as a healthy uh, food. I've, I've not seen that. They're no, th- they're promoting yeah. it as you know as just another. I, I uh, think it's uh, there's a place for that. And, there is, uh, and, and especially, I mean, let, let's face it, animal agriculture is not the most environmentally friendly. No, business, I agree. You know, so uh, that is a reason to gravitate more towards a, a, a plant-based diet. I would diet. make my own um, uh, legume uh, bean burger. You know, yeah. You well, you know, we've, we've had those before, of course. We've mm-hmm. had all the veggie burgers. Yes. But they never claimed to taste like meat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the thing about the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Meat Burger is that they claim to taste like meat. That's the, that's the yeah, difference. So what would you say, I mean, over the years, what... Uh, what are the the most prevalent questions that you're asked? And I, I don't mean by hospital patients who have specific problems, but as in general. In general, I would say uh, more and more um, people are um, asking about uh, vegan, how to how to follow veganism, um, uh, more gastro gastro related uh, issues. Uh, the uh, inflammatory bowel disease is a big one. Um, it's it's quite varied. I mean, um, over the years, uh, the the mainstay are still. I'm still being consulted for um, dyslipidemia and high blood pressure, and actually, fatty fatty liver is uh, is growing in the young young population. Uh, I'm seeing it in a very younger, yeah. you know, in their twenties, thirties with fatty livers and. Uh, and we have a good impact. We can reverse it. The liver really regenerates itself. And once you stop the fast food in general, I would say, yeah. and uh, go towards plant-based. What are you saying about the saturated fats? Because, you know, you go on the Internet <laughs> and, and you will find everything from, you know, the saturated fats are, are brewed by the devil himself and others that we've overstated the case about saturated fats and they're not so bad. So a small amount of saturated fats are okay. I mean, um the we're we're still advocate we're still teaching about uh unsaturated fats are better than saturated fats. The saturated fats come from animal source and usually um foods that are rich in saturated fat are also rich in dietary cholesterol and so we're not so t- about 10% of your calories can are okay if come if they come from saturated fats uh, i think the mono unsaturated fats are uh in the mediterranean diet are are generally better than the than yeah. the saturated fats okay la- one last question what's for supper tonight What's for supper tonight? Um, I'm actually uh, invited to my sister-in-law's, and uh, we're probably going to be having um, some, well, probably some vegan pizza. Uh, usually Sunday nights are we have pizza, and um, I don't know, some veggies and a whole variety of things. Good variety. <laughs> variety is spice of life. Is the spice of life. All right. March the 4th is uh, the uh, first celebration of Nutrition Month of the Jews General. I'll be there speaking, and you'll have a chance to ask nutritionists and dietitians who in Quebec are the same thing, uh, <laughs> some uh, uh, questions that come across your mind. That's it. We have run out of uh, time, but of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm George Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.